Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. This previously recorded episode of Back from the Borderline may contain mentions of social links or initiatives I took part in that are no longer active or relevant. To follow the podcast on Instagram, connect with me directly, or support the work I'm doing, visit backfromtheborderline.com. You have entered Back from the Borderline, where we walk willingly into the darkness within our minds and return home to ourselves transformed. I'm your host, Molly. I spent most of my life numbing the pain and emptiness inside me, unaware that my self-sabotaging behaviors and thoughts were destroying my ability to connect with myself and other people. One day, I decided I was sick enough of my own bullshit to hear life calling, telling me it was time for a change, and I decided to answer that call. On this podcast, we'll learn that when we see ourselves as the hero of our own journey, it gives us the best chance at finding our inner truth and integrity. Together, We'll learn to hold complex feelings, expand our consciousness and self-awareness while making meaning of our suffering. Are you ready to find out who you are underneath the weight of everything that's been keeping you stuck? If the answer is yes, follow me down the rabbit hole of psychological and spiritual growth. I'm so glad you're here. And with that, let's dive straight in to the episode. Hello everyone, welcome back. Again, it is another episode of Back from the Borderline. I wanted to take care of a couple of things before we jump into today's interview. We have surpassed 4,000 downloads of the podcast and we're just barely two and some months into this thing. I want to thank each and every one of you who have reached out to support me, who have left reviews. I've read every single one, and I'd like to just take a moment to read a review that just came in this week. This one is from Apple Podcasts from a user named Kara Logan, and the subject of the review says infinite stars and gave the podcast five stars. The body of her review says, As the partner of someone with BPD, finding this podcast has been life-altering for both of us. Him being newly diagnosed and myself struggling to understand and be the best possible partner I can be while also maintaining my own mental health. So much honesty, vulnerability, compassion, and healing has come into our lives as a result of tuning in. Kara, this review meant so much to me. I created this podcast because I wanted to connect the dots between people with BPD and their loved ones to create awareness, to create healing and understanding, and to know that my podcast is doing that for 
partners who love each other and are trying to grow together, I can't tell you how much that means to me. I have received countless other DMs on Instagram, comments on YouTube. The outreach from all of you has been so incredible and it keeps me going. So keep reaching out to me. I love it. Keep sharing the podcast with your friends and partners. It is amazing stuff. Today, you're going to be hearing a conversation that I hold very close to my heart. I want to preface this stating that there are a few audio issues in this interview. Sometimes the audio is a little quieter. Mel, our guest, is in the process of moving, and so she took the time to sit down with me, and we just captured this beautiful conversation on the fly. So bear with us because there are some quiet parts in the audio that may be more difficult to hear, but the content is worth the listen. It's important for me to note that Melanie and I had never met in person before this conversation, and Listening back as I was editing this episode, I was struck by the realization that those of us with BPD have such an incredible power to connect with people, to feel the feelings of others, and to just have vulnerable, powerful conversations of healing when we want to. This conversation with Melanie was so amazing for me. I was able to open up about a lot of things I've never opened up about before. And we talked about things that I know are deep-seated issues for many of us with BPD. So if you're ready to get really deep with it, this conversation is going to blow your mind. Okay. So everyone, I'd like to welcome my guest, Mel slash Melanie, however you'd like to to be referred to. So I'll just have Mel go ahead and introduce herself. I was diagnosed borderline about 10 years ago, and it has been a very interesting journey. And I had no idea what borderline was when I was first diagnosed in the hospital. And I've said this story several times, but in a sense, when you're first diagnosed, it can be a really very complicated and tricky thing to take in because at first you hear the word borderline and it 10 years ago, even it was something that being in Canada, there was really few doctors and still just to get doctors and to figure everything out on your own. You felt very alone at the time. So navigating the system, navigating my life and navigating this all has been a saving grace to my, to my life, but as well been very scary. But at the same time, it has been my calling and it led me to do what I'm doing currently, um, which I am currently in my master's studying to be a psychotherapist. And my dream of all dreams is to open up an actual center to help other people struggling with BPD. And um, I want to dedicate it to my grandmother who also struggled with uh, mental illness. And my goal isn't so much to educate only, but it's also to show the human aspects that we struggle with daily with BPD, because I feel that people don't understand to the extent that 
what we feel emotionally every day. We feel things and we try to explain them to people, but to understand on a human level is different than just to educate. This is what you should do. This is how you should do it. And this is why you should do the things, but to understand on a human level what we go through. So someone struggling with BPD, helping other people with BPD, owning the center and studying through doing my master's. That's what my goal one day is to just kind of help from that place. I think that's fantastic. And for the listeners, where are you currently located and what is your current status with your BPD? Yeah, so that's a great question because you and me have gone back and forth about, you know, cure and status. And Mm -hmm. I'm currently in Toronto, Canada, Mm -hmm. but um, I help any way I can as I'm not yet a mental health professional, but I Mm -hmm. do believe I'm a peer advocate, a mental health advocate, and I help Mm -hmm. any way I can online. However, when it comes to status, I love to talk from a place of recovery and management as the word cure and people talk in recovery about cure all the time and remission and throwing out tons of words like this. I have no problem what people um, and individuals love to say for themselves, because I believe like anything, when it comes to therapy approach, any modality, anything that works is individualized. So for me, if meditation works for you, great. If CBT works for you, great. Compassion therapy works for you, great. I believe process and anything that gets you to feeling good, that is the right thing for you. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to my um, recovery and management, I'm, you know, I have every single symptom, but, and I always will is what I truly believe, but my symptoms have lessened completely lessened, but it takes so much work mm-hmm. every day, every single day. And I truly believe personally, once again, I always say the word personally, that if you aren't doing the work and you don't know that it takes work and individual work. So what works for you? And if you're not doing that work, you're going to constantly stay stuck, like stuck. And that's just kind of where I go and how I feel. And I talk I, I talk through this with my own personal therapist. People come to me and they go, well, how long is, how long am I going to feel better? Like, when am I going to feel better? And I'm always like, oh, you know, that's a really interesting question. Cause I wish I had the answer for you. It's like <laughs> asking someone, when am I going to get married? Right. Yeah. It's like, I, I don't know, you know, I, I, I can't tell you that. And I can't tell you the amount of people that I receive messages from on Instagram. And I'm sure you receive similar messages. And for listeners, I'll link to Mel's Instagram account. That's how we found each other. I found her on Instagram because she has a massive audience of people recovering or suffering from BPD. And the amount of messages that I receive from people that are replying to my stories that will say, how did you recover? Or how long is it going to take me? Or yeah, this, you can do this, but I'm a different case, right? Like I can't recover. My case is so much worse. Um, X, Y, Z circumstances mean that I can't get DBT therapy, right? But my perspective is therapy is great. And I'm in therapy right now with a a certified DBT therapist, which I know is a massive privilege because around the country, I know in the UK right now, some people can't even get 
on a list for a DBT therapist. There's a massive shortage of people that even provide DBT or even take on border uh, people, patients with borderline personality disorder. My question to you is what is your response when you get messages from people that say, Oh, Mel, you know, you're doing so great and you're kicking ass at recovery, but that can't be me. It's a really, really good question. And there's actually something in DBT called willful versus willingness. And when I think about that, I think about the process of depression and depressive episodes. And I think about something that I learned in school, it's called a feedback loop. And we learn about feedback loops and we have to learn about the things that keep us staying the same. And it's the same idea about depression. It's a catch 22. What are the things that make you feel better? They're the things that you keep doing. And it's this definition of insanity. The more you do the same things, you're going to get the same fucking thing. (laughs) Every time someone comes to me and they go, you're so strong. I'll never be like you. Here we go. You're throwing out the never. So what are your core beliefs? What are your irrational thinking? What is the same statements you're saying? And here's this feedback loop that you have convinced yourself. Look, I know when I personally am in this willful. So willful is when you throw your hands up and you say, fuck it. I'm done. I have the knots, the nevers. It's not going to happen. It's not going anywhere. And these core beliefs, whether they're your part of your subconscious, whether this has been ingrained, your trauma, your childhood, I can't even begin to tell you how many nevers I have. It's been part of my language, the way I talk to myself. I even spoke about it this morning, challenging my own stories. I can make up a story for every single circumstance. You know how many stories I can make up? Oh my God. Well, my friend didn't call me back because my friend went to, you know, the zoo and she went over here and she's friends with new friends. I'm not good enough. Yeah. That's the thing though, with BPD, we're really, really good at telling ourselves the stories. That's the thing. I have told my boyfriend before where I'll be telling him, you know, I'm for sure going to get fired and here's why. Cause I made like some minor mistake that probably my boss didn't even think, but I will rationalize it to my boyfriend. And he's like, Molly, you're so good at convincing. If I just took what you're saying at face value, I would believe for sure you're getting fired, but he'll come over and say, show me the exact email. He'll look at the facts and he'll say, how in the fuck did you get to you getting fired from this? Right? Right. So we're good at telling ourselves these stories. So it can be hard. You're so good that eventually that becomes your reality. And boom, this reality it becomes your core belief. And the issue with that is you never believe and you lose so much hope. And that becomes you not ever realizing that this has become who you are. And that's your new identity. Mm-hmm. And it's so hard, I understand, to get out of that. But that episode and that feedback loop, it needs to be squashed. So, how? How do we squash it, right? Like, and and everyone's like, oh, I'll never, I'll never squash it. I'll never squash it. So this is why I said individualized practices. What individualized practices work for you? Because so sometimes for people, they go and they found God. And sometimes people are like, oh, I found this coach. I found therapy. I found grounding, found meditation. However, you know what it does take? Work. 
It does take you finding what works, but, and this is why I really wanted, really wanted to, wanted to touch it to touch important, and it really is important for people. And I hate to talk too general, but people with BPD, we function from ritual and from doing rituals. But when we don't do things constantly that do work for us, we go back. We constantly go back. And I noticed that within myself, even the last six months, I like to look at the model um, and approach. And it was in a book and it's a book I love. It's called, I hate you. Don't leave me understanding the borderline personality. And they talk about a model and they talk about um, approach and they talk about degrees of borderline versus you're cured and versus you're completely recovered ED. And the way I say that is some individuals they can function higher with some of the symptoms. And I'm, and I'm saying that only in the case that like, for example, some days when it comes to the symptom emptiness, I don't feel empty at all, but maybe, maybe Pam, she's really empty some days and she's not right. And why I'm saying that and we were discussing, it's along a spectrum. So it's important to recognize these things because maybe meditation works really well for me. So I need to see the things that are working in my life to notice where my symptoms and things that are working with the symptoms and start noticing where are my degrees and what are the things that function. But once again, the things that are working for me and making me a higher functioning individual in the degrees, I got to be doing them consistently. I got to be doing them every day, whether I want to willfully be doing them or not. And that's hard. I struggled with a lot of intrusive thoughts and really a deep sense of emptiness. So for me, when I first started to try to sit down and meditate, because what did I do? I read meditation helps. So what did I do? I download the meditation app and I try to sit down and meditate. I was terrified. I remember sitting down and meditating and being so scared because I was like, is this supposed to be relaxing for people? This is not relaxing for me. This is so scary. I specifically walk around and listen to podcasts all day so that I don't have to think about what's going on up here because it's fucking frightens me. And so when I sat down to meditate for the first time, I wasn't prepared for what was going to come up for me. So I think that figuring out our underlying beliefs first. I'm curious to know what your perspective is because I think a lot of people approach recovery. They go on and they find pages like ours and they see, oh, I should meditate. Oh, I should do Dear Man from DBT. And they start taking little bits and they apply them to their life and like patch them on like a Band-Aid. And I, the metaphor I think of is like, you wouldn't put a Band-Aid on like an infected pussy wound, would you? No, you would You would go and wash it out and you would scrub it out and it would really hurt at first and you'd have to get it really clean. Then you would start dressing your wound every day while it heals. And I think a lot of people don't address their pussy wound of their BPD. It's like an, I couldn't start getting enjoyment from meditation until I cleaned out my wound. I had to sit there and go, what is this coming from? I had to sit down and think about my childhood. And a lot of times I feel like we pass the buck onto therapists. They're like, I'm going to go to therapy and then I'll be fixed. It's like, no, all a therapist is going to do is reflect things and ask you questions. It requires you to go under the hood, you know? And my question for you is what advice would you give 
for people to start doing the preliminary work? Because I hear a lot of people saying, I can't get into DBT. I can't meditate. So therefore, mm, I can't do recovery. How can people approach the hard work of recovery? How can you clean out your wound? How do you find those underlying core beliefs so that then you can start successfully doing things like DBT, successfully doing things like meditation? So that is one of the hardest things is to notice your own resistances. So I actually will give you something and it's something I discovered and I, I love it. And once again, personal, right, to me. It is so personal. And that's another thing too. If you're listening to this and you're listening to Mel and I talk, or you're listening to then any of the other guests, why I created this is because here, here's a smorgasbord of ideas. Pick what resonates for you and then leave the rest, right? You can't just take a prescriptive model that someone else gives you and say it's going to work for you. Gary Bishop John, one of my favorite coaches, and he has all these books. He always says, he goes, why self-care books and why all these books, like the 10 tips of this and the 10 tips of that, why they're so overwhelming for people is exactly what you're saying. People go home and they try all these things and then they forget about them or they don't resonate and they get overwhelmed. They throw the fucking books out Mm -hmm. and they go, oh my God, I'm a failure. I'm a loser. I'm a whatever. And then they're done. And you know what? They find themselves back where they started and sometimes worse off. So you're going, okay, What's going to work for me? What's going to work for Melanie? And I'll give you an example. I know personally, I have so much struggle with identity. Like I want to be this musician, I, which I did. I want to be, you know, the best therapist. Like we all want to be the best us personal, right? And whether it's comparing, whether it's whatever we all personally struggle with, because we, I don't give a shit. We all have mental health issues in a sense because we're human, Right. So for me personally, I was like, how am I going to understand why these issues just keep popping up? And I am doing this during my break now, and I've been working on it. I'm creating an audio that is myself talking in the morning. So it's me waking up in the morning and it's words that resonate with myself. But if they make me cringe, I'm going to hear the voices of why I'm cringing. So I'll give you an example. So I'm going... Melanie, good morning. You are enough. For example, you are great for these reasons. You've gotten this far because, you know, all of these fights you've made with love, with music, with mental health, with school. You you one day want to do this. You one day want to do that. Keep pushing. Put your feet on the ground. You know, open up the window. Go brush your teeth. But it's me talking to myself. Ooh, so you recorded this for yourself and you play it every morning? this as we speak. However, I'm noticing as I'm doing this, the things that are making me cringe as I'm recording, even the things like you are enough. And I'm, I can hear in my head, you're not enough, Melanie, because you're, you're fat. You're not enough, Melanie, because you don't deserve these things. And I'm hearing this other person inside of me that's living that is almost like a devil talking to myself. I called myself the BPD monster. I know we all have our own. I even wrote an article about- My dark my, passenger. Yeah, you have yours? I was listening. Yeah, it's like I, Dexter. <laughs> yeah, and mine's called my BPD monster. And every morning she goes, no, 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 no. You're never getting out of bed. You can't do this. And I actually love it because you talk to your BPD monster. And that's what I'm going to do with this voice. But the different, that's how you hear your resistances. So that's what it is. And I'm going to go- 
oh, okay, that's not why you're not good enough. Well, that's not necessarily true, but let's start fighting it and checking the facts. Have you heard of shadow work? Yeah. So so essentially what you're doing is like, you know, talking with your inner critic or your inner saboteur, right? And I did a uh, shadow work course and one of the, my closest friends now, the coach that I engaged, it was the first investment I made in myself. And I thought I was nuts. I found a girl who did shadow work and she advertised herself over Instagram. And I followed her for like about the course of six months and then advanced, eventually did a one-on-one program with her. And it was one of the best things I did for myself, again, personally, because it helped me dialogue with my inner critic and figure out what was underneath some of these views that, that I'm not enough, right. Or that I don't know my own needs. I I dug a lot into my sexuality, right. Because I felt like I was super sexual before I get in relationships. And then when I get into a relationship, I become really sexually closed off because like almost like asexual grandma, like I turn into just like a complete don't want sex and I just want to be coddled and loved by my partner and I feel awkward with sex. And then it leaves my partner going, do you even love me anymore? And I'm just going, I'm seeing you literally go, yes. Is that something you can resonate with? Because dear God. I'm screaming. I'm literally screaming and putting my hands up. Like sometimes my fiance will be like, I, what's up? Like, it's as if you're this cold and barren woman some days. And I'm like, yep. It's so weird. I could have, I was in love addiction for a couple of years before I met him. And I, with men, I didn't know for many years, I was able to give myself away like fully. And then with him, it's as if I'm this stoic person some days. And I, I've been trying to do that work with myself and figure that out. And it's not, it's been taking patience. And I hear you so loud. The sexuality stuff is hard because, and I found, I have a really good therapist. When I bring that up with her, you can, when you, you bring something up to a therapist and they're like, bitch, I haven't even fucking figured this out for myself (laughs) yet. Like, like I brought that up with her and I could tell that she was just like, there are certain things that are such a personal journey for all of us and unraveling the female. And I can, again, only speak for myself as a, um, cisgendered woman as my relationship to my sexuality, I had to take a step back at the age of 31 now and realize that I, if I'm not with an alpha male who just takes sex when he wants it, I am in a position where I will be completely cold. Yeah, because I have never had to instigate sex before. And that worked for me because it was easy. I didn't have to like wrestle with these confusing thoughts of sexual desire. Men would just take that from me. And I was like, oh, good. Then I can just satisfy you. And now I'm with a man who's saying like, well, I'm fine to instigate, but I want you to instigate sometimes too. And you you don't walk around. And I find myself asking him, what did your other girlfriends do? And he was with women who were very aggressive, like sexually. And I can't even relate to that mindset. Like I can't. And I asked him like, what do I do? Dress up in lingerie and like walk around the, the kitchen and be like, ooh, like 
bitch, please. Like, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and you sound, and it's, you sound like the voice in my head talking out loud. Yes. So I started figuring it out and it all stems from a lot of my own fear because I didn't have fear with men. I didn't know, but yet it's fear of judgment. Yes. Fear of why we both, cause you said you love drag race as much as I love drag race. I do. I drag race for this, these reasons, the, in the ability to fully like come out and not just as a gay man, like come out of your shell is one of the main reasons I have a hard time just singing one-on-one for people is a hard reason that I sing for audiences where I don't have to see people's faces. It's a hard time. It's a hard thing for me to just to do IG lives. It's a hard thing for me to admit certain truths like the things that hold us back are the things that move us forward, but they're these fears are judgment. And so sometimes getting just fully sexual and fully who you are in front of your partner, who you love the most, who wouldn't judge you. It's the hardest because I don't know what it is. This wall, it has even sometimes nothing to do with BPD, but everything to do with BPD because is it fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, fear of yourself, Yes. And so like this qualified everything for me in my life, these moments, you know, with BPD, there's like an age regression, um, element, right. And I've been wanting to research more into this. And I have thought to myself when I'm with casual partners, which was the case before, or it would be, I was never. And when I say casual partners, People quite often think like, oh, were you just like a slut throwing it around for people? I was actually like getting in like really like serious, like two to three month things. I would only ever be really seeing one person, but it's like the first date I'd be like, oh yeah, I'm in love. I'm planning our fucking future and children. I'm going to see them hardcore for two months. And then either I get the ick, which now I know is splitting, (laughs) but I was like, ew, they do one thing. And I'm like, and goodbye. I felt it very easy to pr- to present this one-dimensional sexual girl to these guys. But um, now I'm realizing that when I get into a serious relationship, it's almost like I turn my partner into the parent figure that I never had. And so with my boyfriend, I'm actually more often like, mm, I want to cuddle. Like, give me a cuddle. And it's like very, very infantilized. And so – it's no wonder when I think about it like that, that I have a hard time switching into embodied sexual woman that's going to like meet my needs because all the needs I have right now, I feel are like, hug me, cuddle me, tell me I'm okay. There's no space for my sexual needs. If that makes any type of sense. It makes absolute sense. How to compartmentalize these people, this, these identities are completely different. And this is what I mean by grappling with all these identities. And that's why, you know, age regression, like we feel soothing this blankie or soothing Mm -hmm. this when we're really distraught, like soothing our partner is our partner, our parent, like is Mm -hmm. our partner taking care of everything. Or when we're with this other relationship, is it just sexual, no emotion? Are we taking care of everything? It's weird how everything just switches into this other identity. We don't actually have different personalities or different emotions. That's mm-hmm. the funny part. We get this very confused as people and people educating this. You know, it's our emotions that are changing. 
Yes. But the emotions we apply to it, they change how we act, right? Yes. All of a sudden, how am I going to act sexual if I don't look at my partner that way? It's not going to happen overnight. But like I said, they've turned into beliefs yes. about the way we look at our partner. The phrase that's coming up for me now is, I contain multitudes, right? Have you heard that phrase where it's, there's so many, you were talking earlier about how you're creating this voice recording for yourself where you're speaking and then you can hear your inner critic popping up. And something I learned in shadow work that's tying all together in our conversation is we contain multitudes. We have a sexual part. We have a critical part. We have a childlike part. We have a people-pleasing part. All of these parts of ourself, I feel like with BPD, we feel like we have to pick one, you know? And if, and I think that's where a lot of my struggles with identity have come, where it was a resistance to the idea that I don't have to pick one of those things. I can be all of those things. That's a really beautiful thing you just said. We're Mm. allowed and we should be allowed to be everything. And I think, so it's funny. I was talking about that in therapy yesterday. It's really hard for me, um, like you're talking about, to be all of me and to accept all of me. And as I'm moving next week into a new house, and sometimes change is hard, but sometimes change is beautiful. And I love the idea of what would it be like to be a new persona, but instead of looking at identity as this is so hard, we have trouble with identity. What about, and you've discussed this before in your podcast, these identities, these new personas, these new masks being these powerful, these superpowers that we use like you're talking about shadow work, or if it's someone like Mel and we talk about drag race, they have names. These drag queens, they use names. So maybe for you to be sexual or for me to be super sexual in this new part, it's here's sexy Mel coming through. Yes. You need a drag version of yourself. What I'm saying. And these are the new you know, parts of ourselves, but it's still ourselves all encompassing. You use the word integrative. We're a new integrative person. Yes. And I think that issue sometimes is that people don't know and people who suffer with BPD because of the identity issue of how to act, whether it's molding through years of these core beliefs, whether it's they're molding their personality based on their relationship as is, whether it's their core belief, oh, it's never going to happen. I'm not good enough. It's not going to work for me. So all of these things have to be thought and whether it's integrated, accepting the good, the bad, the ugly, the all is, I can be sexual. I can be not sexual. I could be hot, this, that, all of it together. Yes. Sometimes because of catastrophic thinking, which is a very popular symptom that we, we go into right to catastrophic thinking. Yep. Ask yourself, this question, it's actually popular in CBT and DBT. What's the worst thing that could happen? Yeah. Literally, every time you answer that question, it's normally never as bad as you think. So this is another skill. People can look this up. It's called check the facts. Mm-hmm. If you were to check facts after what's the worst thing that could happen, mm-hmm. boom, we've already checked the facts. You, you fit all the boxes there. Yes. Like, it's going to go well is such a killer of love and life and hope and we can strangle ourselves in our own fears but it doesn't mean that's going to happen 
It's so true. Our thoughts lie, you know, and it's no surprise that so many self-help gurus that have come out over the the years, Byron Katie is one of my favorites. I don't know if you've heard of her. She, She wrote a book called The Work, right? And loving what it, or she coined a process called The Work and her book is called Loving What Is. And I think she would come out and say, she's not pioneering any new ideas. Nothing, there's nothing new under the sun anymore. Everything comes down to the same kernel of truth, in my opinion, which is our thoughts lie, right? And most of our suffering comes from believing our thoughts. Instead of this world where we go, you have to love, you have to love, you have to love. I always say, and I work on this with so many people, it's about having self-compassion. Mm-hmm. Why are we pushing? You've got to love yourself. You got to, if you start with having some compassion for yourself and kindness, like a little bit, like ease into it, like an understanding and a little bit of acceptance, even for the good and the bad, like we're saying, mm-hmm. if I'm going to push you to love yourself right away. It's not going to happen. No, necessarily. That's another thing that I think is infuriating. And I would like to get your uh, perspective on this because my God, so many people throw around the phrase self-love, self-care, self-love. You got to love yourself. I mean, even RuPaul says you got to love yourself, right? But it's not easy to love yourself. Why do you think it's so hard? Compassion is different because if you can come from, if you, you use this so beautifully in your own podcast, if you were to take young Molly, little Molly, a little girl, and we talked about age regression a tiny bit today, and I'm sure you will cover this in the future. Imagine this little girl is crying because someone took her teddy bear and you were to like talk to her. That's about having compassion for that little girl. You wouldn't be like, you got to go love yourself, Molly. You're not being loving right now, Molly. You'd be like, oh my God, what is that woman doing to that little girl? But if you were to talk to yourself, you would want compassion and kindness. And you just say, look, Life's hard. Life's tough. And life's going to throw you a whole set of cards, just like Marsha tried to do. And and I wanted to talk about it. It's like I watched for the fourth time last night, the movie, The Joker. And And you can look at it as this really dark film, right? And we talk about the system. And you asked earlier, people get thrown a lot of no's from healthcare, insurance, not affording it. However, you're going to be thrown a lot of no's in life. That's life. But if you were to talk to yourself as a little girl, and that's why I think about self-compassion, the end of the day, this is the most important thing I personally feel. You're coming into this world alone and you leave this world alone. What would you say to yourself? Like, what compassion would you have for yourself? You've got to fight for yourself. I know it's hard. Like, yes, we know it's hard. But if you're going to be kind to yourself, you got to say things that resonate. That's why this audio or whatever works for you. Fuck everyone at that moment. What works for you? Getting on that list for DBT therapy isn't going to do shit for you if you haven't absorbed what you just said, which is you come into this world alone, you die alone. This therapist that you're waiting so much to get on the list to could be a dud. It could be someone who is a shitty therapist because there are shitty therapists out there. And I know that because I've been to one, but that doesn't mean that all therapists are shitty. It just means there are shitty people out there that 
aren't going to be your best advocate, but your first problem right there is assuming that someone's going to save you, that this DBT program is going to save you, that this, that when you get a boyfriend, your BPD won't be so bad because you'll have a partner when you move towns, because it's your small town, it's going to get better. Let me tell you, as someone who's been through many relationships, many towns, I've moved six different times. I've been to various different therapists. The only thing that has done anything for my recovery is cut out the fucking victim mentality bullshit. That's it. And it, people don't like hearing that, you know, because it's hard to hear. It's so hard to hear. And it's so weird. I mentioned him earlier, Gary Bishop. He says these really offlandish comments to people and they, they make people like kind of cringe and get out in, in their skin. But just like we're, we have been called sensitive and you can't say these things and we feel like burn victims as much as we can't hear these things. We need to hear these need things. to force we- yourself to hear things. It's like, if you're getting pissed off, get pissed off. Ask yeah. yourself why you're getting pissed off. Are you getting pissed yeah. off because it's actually fucked up? Or are you getting pissed off because it kind of feels yeah. like it hits that- a little too close to home? That's the money right there. And so all the times where I was so angry, I punched a pillow, still do. It's because somebody, something, some fucking day, it was there. It hit a nerve and it still is. An hour ago, my fiance was like, you have an inability at most times to to compromise the things that you don't want to compromise. Like when I'm splitting, when I'm not seeing people, like people's, uh, their opinion. So it's like, No, it's my way right now. I'm seeing it the way I'm seeing it. And that's it. And the Mm -hmm. truth is you step out of it. And as if, like I said, you're stepping out of it, this new persona or here, you're integrative. You've got all those circles and you're all these different people, good, bad, ugly. You can look at yourself and be like, not judge yourself, have compassion for yourself and be like, that's the way you're behaving. Yeah. There's a truth. punch the pillow, do what you got to do, but notice that you're behaving that way. It's hard, like, isn't it? It's it's hard. Everything's hard. Going and doing your master's is hard. Having BPD is hard. Having a relationship is hard. Everything is hard. And, and it doesn't get any easier. That's the thing. And I think that a lot of people get stuck in their recovery with this because they think, okay, if I am can only cure myself of BPD, then life will be easy. And I think a lot of us have this like weird sight at the end of this metaphorical finish line of our life, I guess, where we think that there's going to be no more fucking problems, I suppose, when we get a boyfriend, when we get a house, when we get, but guess what? If I would have told myself five years from now, I would have listed out all the things that I've accomplished and where I'd be sitting. I'd be like, well, you have nothing to complain about. Well, guess what? I still struggle with the same shit because it has nothing to do with anyone else. It has everything to do with how I react inside. I take everything so personally. And I think this is a really good segue into BPD and work because you wanted to talk about BPD and the workplace, which quite often I think people's vision of individuals with borderline personality disorder disorder are these people who are in and out of psychiatric hospitals, who cannot even function, who are out there serially abusing other people and leaving pure destruction in their wake. And while that is the case, there are people with depression that are out there doing the same things, right? It's nothing special about BPD. I have to work so much 
harder, I feel, in the workplace to manage whether or not I'm doing what you are doing with your boyfriend, where it's like, am I just trying to get my way in this interaction or am I trying to create like a copacetic, agreeable environment for other people? And if I zoom out, I actually think quite a lot. If I'm not working at it actively, all I'm trying to do in my BPD mind is like make sure I'm happy, my needs are met, and I'm not thinking about other people. And that's hard to admit. Well, you just admitted it. So yeah. I think, yeah. So, and, and you know what? The the funny thing is those moments where like you admit it to your partner and those moments where you have kind of the clarity, it's like, ouch at first, but every time you do it, like we said, with the degrees of borderline, every time you step back and look at it, it might hurt. It might feel like shame, but it does lessen when you do admit it. You know, because you were outlining as well, the struggle that people can have, it's actually funny. There's multiple studies and research that I've found and borderliners actually work really well in highly functional um, workplaces. And in that book that I mentioned, I hate you, but don't leave me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a conversation that says borderlines fu- uh, frequently function best in highly structured work environments. The helping professions, medicine, nursing, clergy, counseling, also attract many borderlines who strive to achieve the power or control that elude them in social relationships. Perhaps more important, in these roles, borderlines can provide the care for others and receive the recognition from others that they yearn for in their own lives. Mm-hmm. So I thought that that was kind of cool because not only am I studying to be a therapist, but I thought what was especially cool is because we recognize the validation that we need in our own lives. And the emotions that we feel on such a regular basis and what we feel, we're able to provide that for people. So I always say to people, when you're feeling low, go talk to someone. You can feel and get those emotions back. Yeah. You're an empath. This is what we do. We have superpowers. Yeah. People are like, no, what do you mean I have a superpower? I always say to people with BPD, you were born with a superpower. I mm-hmm. hate to admit it. Like, what do you mean? I'm like, you have a fucking superpower. Use it. And the reason why most people don't see that, it turns pathological for us because our emotional superpower, the fact that we can feel things so deeply and have such an easy time quite often connecting to others that are also suffering is because we were born that way. The reason why our personalities turned into a quote unquote disorder is because we weren't raised in an environment that fostered that sensitivity. What is your perspective on how to manage big emotions at work? So I always say this and whether it's work or real life, I always say this like I did. Um, what's the worst thing can happen? Another phrase I always say, and I love my phrases. They really help. To feel so much is hard, but imagine you didn't feel anything. And I know we have this symptom of emptiness, but that's how I combat it. We're always like denying our emotions and saying, oh, I don't want to feel this. I can't believe I have to deal with this. But that's a catch-22 because to feel so much is beautiful. Yeah, okay, I cry so much. I literally cry at a commercial. I cry at a movie. But it is so good. Because it allows us to get creative. It allows us to do well at work. I get 90s in school. Yeah, sometimes it turns into a little bit too much expectation and too much, but I care. 
I care about you. I care about the world. I care about people's emotions. I care yep. about you. And I, so yes. that's how I come about it. You know what and I mean? And imagine, imagine what it would be like, listeners, if you didn't feel controlled by your emotions. And I think that's what scares us is when we get angry, our reactions quite often end up having pretty catastrophic effects. And typically it results in people being pushed further away from us, which is the exact opposite effect of what we're trying to do. And so therefore we associate our emotions as being bad because it equals people going away. Whereas if we just think about it, imagine if you were to feel your emotions, think about them first before you react, then that's when they become your superpower. I'm not a therapist, but for some reason, a lot of my girlfriends come to me with relationship questions. And this is not a BPD thing, people. When you have needs and you don't state them, don't expect anyone to, to be a mind reader. Nope. So, and you know, so if you're texting a thousand times, they're still not being a mind reader. They just may see panic. So my, what you're saying is great because when you enter any relationship, whether it's romantic friendship, uh, coworkers, you know, your future classmates, you want to kind of let people know, and you don't have to feel shame about it. People ask me all the time, should I let this guy know I have BPD? To be completely frank with you, I personally always feel, let people know little bits about yourself because at the end of the day, it's really nice to state your needs, state who you are, state things about yourself because my favorite, we talk about our favorites is Brene Brown. She's a shame researcher. To cut shame at its knees, she always says, talk about it. You don't have to be like, look, I sweat from my armpits. I, I, I can't sleep. I sleep with my blankie every night. You know, I've had 12 failed. You don't have to lay it all out. But you know what you do need to do sometimes in life to make yourself feel a little bit better? Let people in. The world is a scary place. We know this. But if you let people in a little bit, bit by bit, you'll be so surprised yep. how it lets you happen. And often framing those things about what your needs are, you know, because if you go into a relationship and circling back to work, even with working relationships, my boss, we have a small company. I work for a tech startup and I was feeling so overwhelmed and the amount of times I had to rant because quite often our partners are the ones that hear our work rants. And I will say to my partner, you're like, oh, my boss is just sending me so much work. He doesn't even appreciate that I don't have a direct report. There's so many requests. What did I do once I pursued recovery? I sent my boss an email and I said, look, I don't have the bandwidth to take this request on. Here's why. I'm working on XYZ right now. You've asked me to do this. Which priority would you like me to take off of my list so that I can make room for this priority? Then that pops it right back into my boss's court. A, he knows that I'm already overloaded with work. Here's what I'm working on. And it puts the choice on his plate. What would you like me to prioritize? Instead of whining and getting pissed off in the background, and also just bringing whine, whining and annoyance to my boyfriend, I actually thought to myself, okay, I need to state my needs. I need to tell my boss that I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed. That's not a complaint. It's saying my bucket with work is full. What would you like me to remove from my work bucket so that I can make room for this new request? 
And then my boss responded. When I sent that email the first time, I was terrified because I'm like, he's going to fire me. He's going to fire me. No, he responded back and said, oh, okay. Well, I guess you can kick this off of your to-do list because I'd like you to prioritize this now. I went, okay, noted. And now I do that all the time. I'm very much always checking in with my boss, letting him know what my bandwidth is and asking him to let me know what I should remove. And I think that we can take that same strategy into a lot of different aspects of our life. A hundred percent. It worked. And that is such a great example because I think we start feeling because, oh, my BPD, I don't want to go to this event. I'm feeling anxious. I don't want to say no because people will hate me. I haven't gone here. I don't have enough friends. Oh, I should be at this event because these people are at this event. And these kinds of, you know, this is the dialogue that becomes the dialogue that becomes your beliefs about who you are. And the truth is for you to show up for you, you need to show up for you any way that means that works for you. Like I said in the beginning. So if that means that you're not feeling up to par with who you are and at peace, you don't have to go. You're allowed to say no. And I had a really hard time with this because I'm a people pleaser and I'm a person that wants other people. Other people is the key there to be okay. However, if I'm not okay, am I going to be able to be even okay at the party? Am I going to be okay at work? Are you going to put out the best work for your boss? No. So what you did there was a great example of doing good work of showing up for work. Of, of, and this is another thing I always say, are you showing up for other people? Or are you just being seen? When you show up for other people, that means go take a fucking break if you need to. Like I'm burnt out from school right now. So I'm taking a break. And that doesn't mean I'm taking a break and I'm showing up for everyone while I'm taking a break because I'm on break. It means I'm taking a break when I need to. And I think a hard time uh, sorry, a hard thing is, you know, when you're building this life, you know, we talk building a life worth living, we're all talking, you need to know what works for you. And I have, you know, understanding as we beat ourselves up all the time as individuals, that you can't continue to beat yourself up what works for you, right? And this, this is why you have to create the proper dialogue. Like that, what is your proper dialogue? Right? Yep. And that's, it might be, it might mean this new persona, but resetting it. So that you can accept that this happens, have compassion for it, but don't keep revisiting it in the sense where you're beating yourself up while it's happening. It's really difficult to state our needs, especially when you don't know what your needs are. And quite often, state your needs, state your needs. It's another one of those uh, catchphrases that people throw out, like love yourself Self-love, self-care, state your needs. And then when I was on the receiving end of those messaging, that type of messaging, I go, well, I, I don't fucking know what I need. How do you know what you need? It's, it doesn't have to be so much. Like it could be as simple as what do you value? It could be as simple as honesty, integrity, showing up. It could be as simple as do your friendships make you feel safe? So if you enter a new relationship and it's as simple as, look, I need to let you know now that sometimes I don't feel okay all the time and I may not be able to show up because of my mental health. Stating 
the things that happen in your life before they happen so that your friendships aren't understood. Stating to your partners, your bosses, little things. It doesn't need to be, like I said, all your shame out loud. That could be just to a few people, like people that you feel safe and comfortable with, right? And just the things about yourself. But when people like, I agree with you, self-love, stating your needs, like it doesn't need to be a full bucket list. It doesn't need to be a full transcript. You are your identity, your whole system of every single, your bloodline, like none of that stuff. But I do think it's important when you're stating little things that you value, the important things. Like, for example, for me, I need to feel safe in my relationships because I already have a lot of paranoid feelings because they just happen. If I have a friend that just show like, like shows up, right? Like if we have plans, you just show up. If you call me once in a while and I call you, it's just a two way relationship. It doesn't feel one way. If it means that I have less relationships and less friendships, fine. Yep. I would rather have quality over quantity as I get older. That's it. I have so. a question for you. Did you find that before your recovery and maybe even still now, I struggle with maintaining social connections that are outside my favorite person, like outside my partner. Um, And a lot of that was me making commitments to go somewhere. And then the last minute I'm like, oh God, I like, and, and I mean the last minute, like the day of I'll make a commitment to go to a party, say, which isn't happening right now because thank you, COVID. Um, but I w- would make it a commitment to go to brunch with someone. And then the week that it's coming up, it's like I would dread going to the brunch. And then the morning of, I'll be like, no, 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 I got to cancel. I got to cancel. Even if this is with a friend, I really want to see, right? It has nothing to do with the person. And quite often, I saw a lot of my social connections where I was losing them because I couldn't go. I, I like. Did, did you experience that? And now I'm having to realize that I, if I make a commitment to go somewhere, I make myself go now. So I do two things because I know this and I struggled immensely after COVID and still do with social anxiety, which is like, I don't fucking want to do it. And I have that anxiety that comes mm-hmm. because I'm, I hear you. I'm like screaming. I'm like, Oh, like, I'm meeting you right there. Like, and I yep. also think with that month in advance planning, whether if it's not a wedding, I ain't doing it. The reason being, I will do what you're saying. However, your willingness right there, that fight just to show up is really important. However, and this is the biggest, however, for me only doing it now for quality relationships. I had to be friends with everyone growing up. I had to be friends with, Janice and Tina and Martin and Tim. And I had to be invited to every party. If I wasn't invited to every party, then people didn't like me and I wasn't cool. And I was not very cool in school. And I think that's part of the reason I struggled with that same thing. Was yours fully that? Because I, I, you're so cool to me. <laughs> like, really- the, the funny part is, is growing up, I was a really late bloomer. And so I 
really loved Harry Potter. And I was like, no, I was like a super computer nerd. Like I loved playing computer games and all the way up until I was probably about 14. Like I had no boobs. I didn't get my period till I was 16. I was like a really, really late bloomer. And I looked around at all the girls that were developing a lot quicker than me and were getting male attention. I consider myself to be an attractive person, um, like if I'm just looking at myself objectively. But the fact of the matter is, I feel still like that very awkward 14-year-old girl who got cold sores all the time and couldn't do her makeup right and loved Harry Potter. And you said we have to go for the right relationships. And that's what I realized is I was trying to just like get everyone to like me. And I actually don't want everyone to like me because I want the right, the right people for me to like me. And I was spending so much time and effort trying to get male validation boys thinking I'm pretty and boys wanting to to date me. I wasted so many of my years on that. I'm grateful now to be in a partnership with someone that encourages me to find out who I am. What I was going to say to you on that front, you know, for me, that's where God comes in, but not in a, you have to be religious way in a universe way, in a way that we are given things for a reason. And that's where my spiritualness comes in. Mm -hmm. And whether it's patting your bra, right? Because you had to experience wanting validation because you were lacking it from your peers. But then mm-hmm. all these people looking up to you being like, Molly, what do I do? Like, do I need this? And you go, no, fuck sis. You don't need that. Yep. You need to feel yourself. That's it. That's the lesson of life. And it's been that over and over again, slammed in my face, slammed in your face. Like, And I still get reminded of that daily. And I'm sure you do all the time. It's like every time we go out of our door, we look on social media, we go to the TV, we go to a movie, we're constantly reminded that voice, you're not good enough. You got to pad your bra. You got to tighten your skirt. You got to lose some more weight now, like whatever these voices are. But what do we got to do? Do we have to do any of those things? No, we have to listen to ourselves. And it sucks because what are these voices doing sometimes? They're beating ourselves up. That's why it's so important that you go through these experiences. And so I always say, people are like, I'm so upset I got BPD. And Steve always says to me, these are the cards you were handed. Appreciate the cards. These were what you were dealt, but deal with them. Mm -hmm. Figure out how to play them. My dad's favorite game is poker. And you know, the funniest thing about poker is You're dealing with the cards you're handed. And at the end of the day, you could try to get out of your skin. You could try to not feel these feelings, or you could deal with them and use them super powerfully like you are, Molly, with your podcast. It's your choice whether we want to fight that, you know, and that's, that's how, you know, you could fight the walls that you're stuck in. And you mentioned that in the, the passage from the book that you read that, people with BPD can excel in helping professions. And I took that where I still have my job, right? But I decided I'm going to create a podcast. And the creation of the podcast story is I was on the BPD Reddit subreddit, which was one of my favorite. I still take screenshots and post them on the account from there. I made a post one day where I just posted a quote that I came across that was really inspirational for me. And I just said, I'm going to put this in here for anyone 
who needs this today because it helped me. Got like 400 upvotes on Reddit and so many comments and people were saying, thank you for taking the time to type this out. And that whole day I felt so good. Wow, me taking barely any time to just type this out on my phone made some people feel really good. And I went up to my boyfriend's studio and I was like, I'm starting a podcast. And he was like, oh, okay. And I just thought if I can dedicate X amount of hours of my week to just helping people, A, it helps me work on my own recovery and B, I'm helping other people. And that has really given me like an extra boost to wake up in the morning. Now I'm like wondering who's going to reach out. I'm wondering what's the next thing I'm going to post to help people. You understood that moment. That was your ding dong moment. And that's it. I can fight every day of my life, but I will always be fighting whether it was BPD or not. And that's kind of the crux of it. So I'm so happy that I met you. Like that was why I was like, I'm not, that's the community of it. For the listeners, Melanie's discussing Building a Life Worth Living, which is a book written by Marsha Linehan, who is the creator of DBT, Dialectical Behavior Therapy, which is the primary and most highly recommended form of therapy for individuals suffering with with borderline personality disorder. But it's also effective for, I think, everyone, even people who are neurotypical could benefit from DBT because it's basically just interpersonal, uh, relational hacks. Marsha Linehan didn't come out and say that she had borderline personality disorder for a while, right? Right. And I think that, remember I said, when you share your shame, that's when the world will let you in and you let the world in. Mm -hmm. That talks about after, like that was literally the moment. That was like her moment. And it's sad because there's a lot of moments. And look, when Brene Brown, the vulnerability TED talk, it's the most popular TED talk in history. Like in history, if you guys watch that, it's funny, the things we're most scared to do, whether it's Marsha sharing that, why do, why do you think that that guy asked? Because it was kind of trickled to it. People talked about her having mental illness. The book even talks, she was locked up. However, being one of us to fully feel it, to know it's different than sitting across from us, talking to us. It's, it's like you meet someone with BBD, we have a different understanding. And I know I'm saying that out loud and I'm not trying to make other people feel, you know, you're not part of the club, but it is, it's a beautiful thing in that way. Hold up. Okay. You know what that means? This conversation was far too long, far too glorious for me to fit into one episode. I'm going to be dropping the second half of our conversation in the next episode. So you're going to want to check back in because even more gems are dropped. We just kept amping up. The longer we talked, the more passionate we became. And I felt like the more amazing knowledge was illuminated. So if you love what you hear so far, check back in when I drop part two of my conversation with Mel. After this, I plan on going back to my original format for a bit, how I started off with the splitting series. I'm going to dive into a few other prominent PD topics at a really deep level. I love talking to people, but I also want to make sure that I circle back to the education piece as well. So go have an amazing week. Use some of the stuff you learned. 
You're more aware than you were before you started this episode, which is a huge accomplishment. All right, you messy, amazing, emotional, fabulous human beings doing this life thing. That is it for today's episode. I want to thank you so much for listening because out of all the millions, billions of podcasts in the world, you chose to listen to mine. And that means a lot to me. And if you listen this far, I know you never want to miss a new episode. So to make sure that doesn't happen, click follow in your podcast player of choice and you will be alerted every time I drop a new one. To help me grow and help the podcast reach as many people as possible, go ahead and leave an honest rating and review. Not only that, I love to hear your feedback, so please share it with me. I read every single review, and you just might hear it read out loud on the podcast. To connect with me directly, follow me on social media and keep up with all the new updates. You can find that all at backfromtheborderline.com. And as always, any articles, resources, or other helpful information you've heard today can be found in the description of this podcast episode. So don't forget to check out the show notes. And until we meet again, remember, life is a circle, a cycle, a process, separation, initiation, return. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.